Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Robert and Joseph Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory. I'm Nathan Connolly. If you're new to the show, each week my colleagues Brian Ballow, Ed Ayers, Joanne Freeman, and I explore the history behind the headlines. Now, you may have heard our Backstory Prize show a few weeks ago, where we awarded the first ever Backstory Prize for Public History to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. It opened in 2018 and is dedicated to the thousands of African Americans who were lynched between 1877 and 1950. The historian Kadada Williams studies racial violence targeting African Americans, including the wave of lynching that began in the aftermath of the Civil War. Over the course of her research, she came across many accounts of lynchings. What is striking about lynching is that these weren't secret crimes. Often, accounts of lynching would be published not only in local papers, but in national outlets like the New York Times. And while these accounts can give details on what happened the day of the lynching, They're not usually sympathetic to the victim. Davisboro, Georgia, May 18th. Charles Atkins, a Negro, 15 years old, one of four taken into custody today in connection with the killing of Mrs. Elizabeth Kitchens, 20 years old, was burned at the stake tonight. The lynching occurred at the scene of the murder and followed an alleged confession from the 15-year-old prisoner. He was tortured over a slow fire for 15 minutes, and then, shrieking with pain, was questioned concerning his accomplices. Members of the mob, comprising nearly 2,000 people, then raised the body again, fastened it to a pine tree with trace chains, and relighted the fire. More than 200 shots were fired into the charred body following the boy's death. My dear Mr. White, this This is is to to acknowledge and say that that I received your very much appreciated letter. I wish, I wish to say, to say here, here the purpose for my writing, writing you was I am looking around for a good lawyer to bring suit against the state of Georgia for the lynching of my son at the age of 13 years old on the year 1922, 18th day of May. And I'm sending to you for information. The fact the crowd tied a rope around my neck and also tied me to a stump and beat my wife almost to death. She has not been well from that time, and they kept me in jail for 21 months and my wife in jail for seven months. I'm now looking forward to bringing the matter to the state court, just as soon as possible, or as soon as I can get some good lawyer to take the case up. I'm getting old and miss the support of my family and feel that the state should help me to bury this burden. Thanking you for what you have done for me and what you are going to do. I wish to have a favorable answer soon. Respectfully yours, Gaynor Atkins. When African Americans wrote the Department of Justice or when they wrote the President of the United States, they often got a form letter back saying, this is an issue that should be taken up with your state government. What's curious is that a number of African Americans get that form letter and they actually write back and say, I went to my state government first and they did nothing. You could also uh, imagine him potentially writing to the local newspapers, but that would be less likely to occur because newspapers, especially the local ones where lynchings occurred, assume the guilt of the person who's been lynched and don't really press down on the fact that even if they had committed the crime, that they were still entitled to due process and equal protection under the law. They take the story that the mob crafts to justify the killings. And so if he writes out, that could be seen as a direct act of defiance. And there's nothing to stop the newspaper from publishing a letter, including his address, where he is, and putting a bullseye on his back. The NAACP has, up to this point, positioned itself as an ally. They're going to investigate lynchings themselves. They're trying to get the family story out about the killings. So he's writing to the NAACP because he's hoping that they can help him get justice for himself and for his son. July 16th, 1926, 209 Taylor Street, Camden, New Jersey. Dear Sirs, I wrote you some time ago concerning what happened to me 
Now I will tell you the facts in this case to the very best of my knowledge. In May 1922, in Washington County, state of Georgia, my boy was lynched for killing a white woman that was carrying U.S. mail to Davisboro, Georgia. My boy was 13 years old at the time. His name was Charlie Atkins. He was lynched without any investigation by the people of Washington and Johnson counties. And myself and my wife was beat near to death because it was said that my boy did the killing. And it was said shortly after this happened that a white man killed the woman and gave my boy her auto to make it appear that my boy did the killing since my boy knew no better than to let this man give him this auto. Now this is all for this time. Please let me hear from you by return mail as I would very much like to hear from you as quick as possible. Yours truly, Gaynor Atkins. Both of the letters are written longhand. The handwriting is actually very neat, probably doesn't have the fine literacy skills that, you know, some of our listeners might enjoy today. But even without that, you still get a sense of who he was as a person. And I can imagine him as a grieving father who's been beaten, who's been imprisoned, who's left his home community in order to be safe trying to do something, to trying to have meaning in his life by getting a degree of justice for himself and his son. And so that I feel on the page when I interact with the letter. On July 26, 1926, Walter White, Assistant Secretary from the NAACP, wrote Gaynor Atkins back. My dear Mr. Atkins, I have your letter of the 16th relative to the lynching of your son. I am taking the matter up with well-informed people in Georgia. I will keep you advised of all developments. Yours very truly, Walter White. I don't believe I have his initial response. Gaynor's letters refer to earlier correspondence with Walter White and receiving information from him. For the letter that I shared with you all, there's only the little bit that I just read. But what often happens with the first response, it is an expression of condolence, a hope to do what they can to help the family get justice, if that is at all possible. Now, the challenge is that in the 1920s, the NAACP, you know, they're running out of fuel. They haven't been able to get federal anti-lynching legislation passed. And they're also beginning the slow process of trying to branch out beyond lynching and take up segregation and education and other places of public accommodations. So part of what they're able to do at this point is to try to apply some pressure to the governor to try to shame the state into taking some action because that's their only recourse at this point. I don't think that people like Gaynor Atkins know that that's the situation, the internal situation of the NAACP at this point. All he knows is that they've thrown him a lifeline. With lynching victims, families, they feel as though they don't have anything else to lose. But to ask and ask and ask and ask and ask for more, or something to get them closer. On September 7th, 1926, Gaynor Atkins wrote another letter to Walter White. I wrote, I wrote Mr. Alexander, Alexander concerning, concerning the, case, the case as, you, as directed you directed me to do, but I did not get very much satisfaction out of his letter, so I thought I would write to you again to see if you would write the High Sheriff of Washington County, Georgia, and also my lawyer, whose address is Sandersville, Georgia, Washington County. See if you can get any information from them concerning this case. I'm getting older now, and feels the need of my child, and also the time that these people cause me to lose and suffer, so I want to ask you to do all that you can for me. In good many ways, this burdens my heart, so do all you can for me. The loss of my child is worse than all this. I want to consult the government concerning the matter, and I want to ask you to direct me as to just how to get at the matter. My lawyer, Mr. Evans, is the man that cleared myself and my wife of this crime, but my child is gone. He suffered death. My wife suffered for a long time also, and also myself. So answer soon. Respectfully yours, Gaynor Atkins. 
what stands out in the letter is Gaynor Atkins's palpable grief and agony at losing his boy. It's obvious that he's deeply affected by the killing and his beating and his imprisonment. And I think that for me, what the letter does, it's, it connects Charles or Charlie, as his family called him, to community. It says that even though he was isolated from his people at the time of his death, that he was fully human, that he was part of a family that grieved his death long after it occurred. And for me, I think that that's really important because it shows a very different side of lynching that we don't get when we look at the newspapers. And if I can, I'll also connect that to part of what we're seeing with the new Legacy Museum down in Montgomery. One of the things that they've been able to do is to do something historians haven't done, which is connect directly to families. And there are publications and the documentaries that they're working on, and even in the museum itself, they are bringing the story of lynching victims' families, lynching victims' connectedness to communities to light. It's letters like Gainers that, at least for me, caused a course correction in the nature of my research. The writing that I did on lynching was distant and personal. It was discovering Gainers' letter that changed that because I now saw Charlie. I had to ground them. I had to ground those victims, connect those victims to their people because that's how they were in life, as Letters Like Gainers really reveals to me. Kadada Williams is a historian at Wayne State University and author of They Left Great Marks on Me, African-American Testimonies of Racial Violence from Emancipation to World War I. A hundred years ago this year, a white mob forced the entire black population of Corbin, Kentucky, to leave the town at gunpoint. It was one of many racial expulsions in the United States, but if you were looking for an account of the incident, you would search the official histories of Corbin in vain. Our friends at Scene on Radio investigated the story of what happened in Corbin and how it has all but disappeared from the public record until now. We join host John Bewin as he speaks to the mayor of Corbin, Willard McBurney, a retired Postal Service manager. People in my peer group, from they said they had heard from their grandfathers or from their dads, and it was just really passed on down from generation, from generations. And that, that's really the, the gist of, of my knowledge of this. And what version? What was it? I mean, I, well, I heard that uh, there was a. Uh, a group uh, one night that uh, uh, forced a bunch of, uh, of the uh, blacks out of Corbin, and uh, uh, but then uh, I've heard that a lot of that it wasn't to that severity that you know they were they were employed by the railroad company and they did move some out, but then they brought them back in two weeks later to finish the job. And I think that is the railroad brought in another crew of black workers. In this version of the story, that's proof that the expulsion was not about race. In fact, in affidavits collected for the state's criminal investigation several months later, white eyewitnesses backed up the story told by the African-American man. They said the armed mob announced its intention to rid Corbin of black people, and that black baggage workers who tried to return a few days later were threatened and left again. I know that some of the Negroes who were compelled to leave Corbin were property owners and had always been considered peaceful and law-abiding. I do not consider that it would be safe for any of the Negroes to return to Corbin, Kentucky at the present time. As a result of the investigation in 1919, a man named Steve Rogers, who had worked for the railroad, was convicted of leading the mob and spent two years in the Kentucky State Penitentiary. A lot of people in Corbin say there's no point in dwelling on something that happened so long ago. That's how Mayor McBurney feels. But at the same time, he admits the expulsion haunts his town and its image. Uh, I had to go to a marketing meeting in uh, Cincinnati. 
McBurney remembers an incident in the late 1980s when he was working for the Postal Service. There was probably over 100 of us in this meeting from various places. The main speaker at the meeting was an African-American who'd flown in from Chicago. And he was uh, going through how our plans would do this and that. And if any of us had any problems, he said, hey, I'll personally come down and work with you on that. But, he says, and he pointed his finger at me, but he said, I won't come to Carbon. That's what he called Corbin. He said, I will not come to Carbon. And that really made me feel small to be singled out with a group of people like that. I knew that he had heard of the stigma that has followed Corbin. And I mean, there was someone from Chicago. For decades after the race riot, Corbin was known as a white man's town with a visible Klan presence. A town that would tolerate only a token handful of black people. The criminal investigation did find that several whites stood up to the mob. A few protected black people in their homes or businesses. And as you heard, the local newspaper condemned the expulsion at the time. Journalist Elliot Jaspin says most people in Corbin and the other towns where racial expulsions took place don't know this part of their history either. When you have the fable, the heroic acts of the people in the community are lost. They lose their heroes. Writer Silas House thinks white people in a place like Corbin are especially reluctant to talk about their town's troubled past because of worries about Eastern Kentucky stereotypes. Well, people think we're all illiterate, ignorant hillbillies who are also racist and misogynistic and homophobic. And but the decades of silence from Corbin's leaders may have backfired. Silas says by failing to publicly own up to the 1919 expulsion, Corbin has missed the chance to move past it. It was certainly talked about when I was a child and, and when I was a teenager, and people still talk about it. They probably don't talk about it to outsiders, but I think it's important to talk about for several reasons. For uh, number one, you know, just to, to shed light on something that awful happening. Number two, it's, it's important to know about the place you're from. Storytelling is important. And, and number three, it's important to talk about because I don't think that we live in that kind of place anymore. And, you know, to, to maybe shed some light on how different it is today. On the edge of Corbin, a congregation more than a century old meets in a sprawling, much newer building. Senior Pastor Tim Thompson of the First United Methodist Church says in August 2005, he was sitting in his office with some of his staff. We're watching the news. Man, this thing has just wiped out New Orleans and Biloxi and all that coastline down there. Thompson and his staff decided to turn their church into emergency housing for people who'd lost their homes to Hurricane Katrina. I went before the whole church on Sunday morning and said, here's what we want to do. We, we, we raised the issue. We're certain some of the folks that are going to come and live with us are going to be black. We're certain of that. Um, and we just said, whatever, whoever comes, we don't care, it doesn't matter, we'll deal with it, it'll be fine. Um, and so the congregation said, okay. The church hosted about 25 people from the Gulf Coast. They stayed in the church for weeks or months. About half were African-American. Our hope was that maybe a few of the black folks that came would stay here and live and become a Corbinite, live in Corbin, and essentially become pioneers. So 15 or 20 years from now, there's a growing population of black people in this town. But a year and a half later, almost all of the dozen or so African-American guests from the Gulf Coast had gone back home or moved on to places like Louisville or Lexington. All except David Sloan, who we heard at the top of the piece cutting his friend's hair. David came to Corbin from Biloxi. I'm thankful that the church had the vision 
open up their door to bring us up here. I'm a, I'm an adventurer. I'm a pioneer. I, I try anything once. When I met David, he was working in a cabinet factory in Corbin. He said he'd gotten some cold looks in town, and he thought unfair treatment in a couple of previous jobs. A lot of the people up here are stuck back in the 60s. But he said Corbin had not lived up to its old image as a sundown town, a place where a black person better get out before dark or else. His 79-year-old friend from nearby Barberville, Laverta Booz, agrees. She told me these days she likes to shop in Corbin. It used to be that you could walk on the street. Oh, that go a nigger down the street. You would hear this in Carbon, Kentucky. But now, it seems to be much, much better. Now you can walk into a store, you can get a nice smile. Still, some people in Corbin say their town has a lot of work to do in putting its hateful image to rest, starting with some straight talk about what really happened in 1919. You know, you were here 10 years ago, and I don't think that you would recognize downtown if you came back. Laura Smith, the Corbin native who told the story of her mother's lie about where they lived. I checked in with her on the phone the other day and she recorded herself. Laura's now 38. She lives in Egypt, Kentucky. Egypt? Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, isn't it a good place name? <laughs> Egypt is just 45 minutes from Corbin. Her parents still live there, and she's in pretty close touch with what's happening in Corbin. Uh, we have a farm-to-table restaurant downtown uh, that features really great regional food as well as craft beers. We have a really great coffee shop. Laura says with the coal economy's decline, which affects the important railroad business in Corbin, the town has had other economic successes. A new farmer's market led to other foodie businesses and the coffee shop, all owned by younger people who'd lived elsewhere and came back home. Um, and they tend to be pretty progressive, too. So, you know, when I walk into, you know, a downtown restaurant now, um, it's, you know, one of the surprising things is that, one, it's packed, and there's actually people back downtown, which is great to see. Um, and, two, it's a lot of young people, and it's very much a diverse crowd people of color. Laura doesn't know of any meaningful change in the actual black population in Corbin. She thinks those diverse people she sees downtown are mostly just in for the day from the surrounding area. College students, and then there's also folks who are driving down from Lexington and places like that, or tourists um, who are, you know, staying in the area or on their way to other places, so I'm not sure. But in the town known as the home of Colonel Sanders, you can now get a cup of fair trade coffee, and a local restaurant declared itself a sanctuary in the face of the Trump administration's travel ban on Muslim countries. Corbin's vibe is increasingly inclusive, as Laura puts it, which makes it all the more unfortunate, in her opinion, that the town still doesn't acknowledge its troubled past. There's still no public marker of any kind about what happened in 1919. In 2007, the same year a version of my piece about Corbin aired on NPR, Laura and a young newspaper reporter in town organized a display about the racial expulsion at the public library, showing some of the documents you heard about in this piece, those affidavits about the race riot. You know, court proceeding documents, um, clips from the local newspaper and also some of the national newspapers that covered it. And those were put on display um, at the public library for anybody to view. Um, you know, we there weren't, uh, you know, there wasn't like a public dialogue around it, but they were publicly presented. Also in 2007, the Corbin City government organized a lecture series on the history of the town featuring a local historian. Laura went to those lectures and was disappointed. You know, it kind of went to from the founding and kind of early, early history of the town to jumping forward to, you know, the mid to late 1920s. 
Um, so there was a, a sizable gap um, of history that wasn't talked about, including, including the year 1919. Today, the city of Corbin's website features a history page. It includes some colorful details about the town's labor history. It even mentions some violence among railroad and timber workers in the late 19th century that it says gave the town a rough reputation at the time. But about the expulsion of hundreds of black people in 1919 and the town's image problems as a result of that, nothing. As somebody who's from a town that, you know, where a significant race riot occurred, I think it's incredibly important that we um, air that and talk about it and have constructive dialogue around it, um, you know, and memorialize it in some way. Um, and I think that while there are folks that would think that would be detrimental to the town, I actually think it would be incredibly beneficial for the town, um, you know, and the good efforts that are happening there for that to happen. Thanks to John Bewin and our friends at SceneOnRadio.org. That's S-C-E-N-E OnRadio.org for that story of the racial expulsion at Corbin, Kentucky in 1919. One of the most extraordinary stories we've covered on Backstory was the tale of a California celebrity known as the Godfather of Exotica, an organist named Corla Pandit. Pandit was a turban-wearing exotic who became famous in the 1940s and 50s for his dreamy, jazzy tones, which drew freely from the melodies of South Asia and African rhythms. But as producer Nina Ernest discovered, the truth about Corla Pandit was even more complicated than it seemed. Back in the early 1990s, journalist R.J. Smith and his music nerd friends, his words, not mine, would travel around Los Angeles visiting its old tiki bars and cocktail lounges. Corla Pandit, wearing his trademark bejeweled turban, was often one of the performers. We would pull into a nightclub or an old spot, and if they had a piano or, best of all, like a Hammond organ, there was Corla, and he would just play these amazing exotic-sounding songs that uh, evoked uh, Asia, ancient Africa, Persian music, not as it really exists or existed, but as those of us who'd grown up on Hollywood movies thought it existed. This is how the two men met. Smith says that the godfather of Exotica was soft-spoken and philosophical. He also had this whole long, ever-changing kind of um, backstory about how he was from India, born into a Brahmin family, an elite, well-off family in India, and they sent him off, his family did, to the West to go to music school. Everybody knew that. Not long after Panda died in 1998, Smith was interviewing black bebop legend Sir Charles Thompson. Thompson was originally from the Midwest. Out of the blue, he started talking about uh, when he was a young man, he'd heard a guy play that was the best piano player in the region he'd heard of, a real boogie-woogie player, and he never knew what happened to that guy. His name was John Red. Uh, but then one day, after Sir Charles Thompson had moved to Los Angeles and established his career, he was watching TV one day, and he saw this man with a faraway look in his eye and a turban on his head playing exotic sounds, allegedly, of the Far East. And he knew who that guy was. It was John Red, who he, heard, he had heard play as a young man. And that just blew my mind. I knew he, he was talking about Corla Pandit. John Red was Corla Pandit. Pandit wasn't from India. He was actually African-American and from Missouri. John Roland Red was born there in 1921. But in the 1930s, he and other family members began to move to Los Angeles. In L.A., Red started looking for work as a musician. He was talented, an excellent piano player and organist. But Southern California wasn't all that welcoming. Opportunities for African-American musicians were still hard to come by. So Red, who was light-skinned, began passing in his performances. On one level, it's simply an equation. 
there were two different musicians' unions in Southern California, a white one and a black one. Now, if you were in the black one, there were only certain places you were going to ever get gigs. Now, if you could pass yourself off somewhere in between white and black, your opportunities multiplied. Red first tried out a Latin American alter ego named Juan Rolando. But by the late 1940s, he had adopted the Indian-born persona Corla Pandit, the identity he would maintain for the rest of his life. The centerpiece of his costume was his turban. Red was hardly the first African-American to take this approach. Some black men were known to wear turbans to get around mistreatment and segregation laws in the Jim Crow South. In 1944, Pandit had married a white woman named Beryl DeBeeson. Some speculate that she helped him craft this character. And it worked. Pandit got his big break in what was then a new medium. In Southern California in the late 40s and early 50s, Corla Pandit was a TV star. A program based on the universal language of music, it is our pleasure to present to you Corla Pandit. He would say nothing. He would just look into the camera, play the organ or the piano. It was sort of um, Liberace before Liberace even, in a way. Corla Pandit's Adventures in Music first aired on L.A.'s KTLA in February 1949. The show, performed live, came on every weekday afternoon. And he would just look out into the living rooms of Southern California, and his eyes were intense and mesmerizing. And the music was intense and mesmerizing. And housewives all over Southern California swooned. Pandit's silent appearance on the show wrapped him in mystery. What his viewers didn't know was that they were watching one of the first African-Americans to have his own television show. Pandit's legend grew in the following decades as he told stories about his Indian upbringing. Take this appearance on a local talk show. I was born in New Delhi, New Delhi, India, Uh and uh, started performing music, in a sense, at a very early age, two years and four months old. He went on to have a long career, performing well into the 1990s. That's when Smith met him around Los Angeles. Smith says that once he learned that the enigmatic pandit was actually African-American, he couldn't stop thinking about it. And that just told me if I'm fascinated by it and the people I'm talking to are, maybe this is something worth writing about. Not long after Pandit died in 1998, Smith published an article revealing Corla Pandit's identity in Los Angeles Magazine. Smith wrote that Pandit's children didn't know the truth. In fact, his son and even his wife Beryl denied the story. Pandit's surviving son could not be reached for comment. By many accounts, the news shocked a lot of music fans. But it didn't surprise the African-American family of John Roland Red, many of whom lived in Los Angeles. There was so much more to Corla than mainstream's discovery of his cultural identity because it wasn't a secret within the community that he came out of. This is Corla Pandit's great-niece, Adrienne Hernandez. She's the granddaughter of one of John Red's sisters. Adrienne says she knew from an early age that her uncle was the Corla Pandit, but also Uncle John. Since R.J. Smith's article, Corla Pandit is now just as known for his racial passing as for his work as a music and television pioneer. But Adrienne says she doesn't really think of her uncle as someone who passed. One of the things that is often covered when we discuss concepts of identity passing in this country is the sentiment that everyone who does that is in a place of forsaking the traditions and culture that they come from. I just don't think that our family experienced it that way because we had access to my uncle. There was never a feeling of, oh, we've lost him. Pandit was a big part of her life. He often visited the family and they attended his performances. Adrian says many in their Los Angeles community knew he was the son of local pastor Ernest Red. She saw the persona of Corla Pandit as more of a performance costume. If my uncle fits into that category of passing, 
is because American society needed him to have the look of Corla Pandit in order to fully receive the gift that he had to offer. You know, kind of the inside joke about Corla's presentation was that the Hollywood story is that he was Hindu, and Hindus don't wear turbans. And yet, all of his audience was willing to receive him as a Hindu because that's what they wanted him to be. They liked the turban. They liked the jewel. Another of Pandit's nieces, Maya Hernandez, also grew up knowing her uncle. She and Adrian are first cousins. Maya says she's proud of what John Wright accomplished in the guise of Corla Pandit. Bravo for him in some ways. You know, I don't necessarily feel comfortable with appropriating one culture for another. But I also think, too, he lived in a very oppressive time. There was secrecy in Pandit's life. From what we know, he didn't tell his children about his racial background. But he was a part of his African-American family who viewed Pandit and Red as one and the same. It was something I think in some ways was supported by the family. At any time, any of his siblings could have outed him. There was opportunity there, um, but it was something that was supported because I think they saw the value in helping Corla be an individual and loving him for who he was. Some people have criticized R.J. Smith for being the one who outed Corla Pandit. What was I outing him as? An African-American? Is, is that something to be ashamed of? I, I'm sure that Corla, son of an African-American leader in the community in Los Angeles, I'm pretty confident he was not ashamed of that. I'm pretty confident that why he put the turban on was not out of shame or guilt or not liking who he was. It was for who the rest of us were. Producer Nina Ernest uncovered the extraordinary story of Corla Pandit. In April 2018, Backstory marked the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. with a show which explored King's real political views and assessed his legacy. One of the topics we addressed was the nature of King's posthumous rehabilitation. In 1966, a Gallup poll had found that King was viewed unfavorably by 63% of Americans. Today, of course, King is an American icon, and a 2011 poll found that 94% of Americans had a positive view of him. So how did that happen? My colleague Brian Ballow talked to a number of King scholars. When I was thinking of the contributions to our country, the man that we're honoring today, a passage attributed to the American poet John Greenleaf Whittier comes to mind. Each crisis brings its word and deed. In America in the 50s and 60s, one of the important crises we faced was racial discrimination. The man whose words and deeds in that crisis stirred our nation to the very depths of its soul was Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. On November 2nd, 1983, President Ronald Reagan signed the Martin Luther King Day holiday into law. It was a holiday that Ronald Reagan had opposed for decades, but in a speech in the Rose Garden in front of members of Congress and members of Martin Luther King's family, he praised King as a man who awakened something strong and true in the American people. In 1968, Martin Luther King was gunned down by a brutal assassin. His life cut short at the age of 39, but those 39 short years had changed America forever. Session ended with the guests bursting into an impromptu rendition of the civil rights anthem, We Shall Overcome. King had already appeared on a U.S. postage stamp in 1979, but the national holiday in his name was a crucial step to establishing him as a national symbol. Today, Martin Luther King is celebrated in children's books, inspirational posters, and a monument in Washington, D.C. within sight of the Lincoln Memorial, where King delivered his I Have a Dream speech. 
A Gallup poll in 2011 found 94% of Americans have a positive view of Martin Luther King. In August 1966, a Gallup poll found that King was viewed unfavorably by 63% of Americans. So how did King make this journey from controversial civil rights leader to American icon? First point was the assassination itself, where the way King died uh, positioned him to become a martyr. Jason Sokol is the author of The Heavens Might Crack, The Death and Legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. The other thing is that King's death itself accelerated the move toward radicalism and militancy among African Americans. And that, that was something that was going on along, among young Americans in general. You know, the weathermen gathered steam and momentum in 1969 and beyond. So a lot of the alternatives that were offered in 68, 69, and through the 70s were these more violent alternatives. And when, uh, when King's message was counterposed against those alternatives, he, he began to seem even more moderate. A and so I think a lot of white Americans could latch on to parts of King's vision that they were comfortable with. For instance, every American today probably knows the line from the I Have a Dream speech where King talked about how, how he longed for the day when his children would be judged um, not by the color of their skin, by the content of their character. Now, that's a message that a lot of white Americans can embrace. Later in the same speech, King talked about the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. He talked about the whirlwinds of revolt that would shake the nation if, if justice didn't come soon. So I think, um, you know, there were parts of King's career in life where he really did offer this vision of interracialism and colorblindness. And I think uh, over the years, once he was gone, it became easy for, for white Americans to embrace one part of his message, that the interracialism and colorblindness part, and conveniently forget about the parts that were more threatening. You know, King's challenge to American imperialism, King's challenge to capitalism itself. So has the creation of King the Icon come at the expense of King, the radical political leader? Jean Theo Harris. I think we like a king who is easy. What we don't tend to want is a king who challenges us, who shows us our complacencies, who calls us out for wanting easy change, wanting change that won't cost us anything. I mean, I think we, we like an association with king, right? Uh, but we like that only as far as it makes us feel good about ourselves. And, and the minute it holds a mirror to our contemporary actions, it becomes less appealing. He was safer dead than alive. You know, for most Americans, he was more acceptable. That's Claiborne Carson, the director of the Martin Luther King Research and Education Institute at Stanford University. You know, you could see it happening the moment he died. Look at who came to the funeral. People who would not have been seen next to him when he was alive, especially from the political world, you know, they all wanted to be in the front seat at the funeral. And people who had known and followed Martin Luther King couldn't even get in. There was already that beginning of the reinterpretation of Martin Luther King, that he was the great he heroic figure of American citizenship, you know because that's, that's the part of him that had become part of the self-conception of the nation. The Civil Rights Act kind of took away that stain of the Jim Crow system. And so if you identified him with that, that was something that embarrassed the nation and the world. You know, but... Uh, what he was doing during the th last three years of his life, of course, uh, was quickly forgotten. Tom, help me out here. Today we go into schools and see pictures of Martin Luther King. Uh, he is so much a symbol of uh, bringing the nation together, if you will. How did the king who was despised by so many 
at the time. Uh, how, how did the king, who was portrayed as a communist and a radical by the FBI, how did that king become domesticated? It's a complicated process. It's happening before the assassination. You can see King speaking differently to different audiences. He's labeled a moderate militant by Augie Meyer in 1965, not because he was both at the same time, but because he spoke to different audiences based on his judgment of their values, what they were ready to hear, what it was safe for him to say. It's no surprise that in the dream speech, he would appeal to the Christian and the American nationalist ideals and share this optimistic hope that one day his children would be judged on their character and not their color. But nor is it surprising that a month later, with 20,000 trade unionists in Madison Square Garden, that he would include a much more radical line from the standard dream speech. I have a dream that my children would grow up in a nation where property and privilege are widely distributed, a nation which does not take necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes. King has become quite a hero of those who are identified uh, on the right side of the political spectrum. Ronald Reagan and a number of neoconservatives have uh, embraced King as a symbol for America. Absolutely. And there are elements of symbolism and pieces of rhetoric that support a kind of conservative approach or a celebration of America as post-racial. My best example is when Reagan signed the holiday bill after years of debate, well, not only did he say, you know, we won't find until 2027 whether he was really a communist, what he did is he went to black schools and lectured that Martin Luther King believed that all of you should be judged by your character and not your color as individuals. His dream was the American dream. It's a dream that made America great, and it has come to pass, and you now all have opportunity because of Dr. King. And had he lived, he would support my policies of Reaganomics, because an unfettered marketplace is the best arena in which that kind of individual freedom can thrive. He would have opposed affirmative action because it's not the state, it's God that gives you your rights. And affirmative action is a violation of that sacred principle of individual liberty. You can quote King to support that. And he did. So that ideological contest, at the same time, there were marches on Washington right, that were bringing Reagan to task. Look at the photographs of the 1983 march that I attended. And they are all taking Reaganomics to task for violating King's economic dream of a real war on poverty, of a guaranteed annual income, and of affirmative action that would uplift suppressed minorities. I think if we listen to Dr. King, right, Dr. King is calling out systemic racism in the United States. There's this beautiful quote that he writes at the end of his life where he's talking about how black people took white people on the word that equality means equality when many white people sort of take equality as just improvement and are not committed to equality at all. Right? That Dr. King would be very dismayed at the ways that he is now deployed in the service of inequality, in the service of standing in the way of movements for justice today. You know, we have Mike Huckabee, you know, calling on Ferguson protesters to be more like King, or we have uh, then Mayor Kasim Reed um, saying Dr. King would never take a highway, um, which is a gross distortion of who King was and what he did. But is it possible, 50 years after his death, to reconnect King the icon with King the radical political leader? Claiborne Carson I think it is because you have a new generation coming up who are dealing with the problems left behind by the civil rights struggle. You know, that, that's why I think the relevance of his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? You know, he was writing that after the passage of civil rights legislation. So contemporary movements 
are basically making the same argument that he made back in 1967. They're saying that these changes were important, but they didn't deal with the fundamental problems in America. The fundamental problems was not this uh, um, Southern Jim Crow system. Uh, you know that that was an important issue that need needed to be taken care of. But once you've done that, it just makes the South like the rest of the nation. And it's not like black people are thriving in the rest of the nation. So uh, I think that's where we are now. We haven't answered his question, where do we go from here? You heard the scholars Jason Sokol, Jean Theo Harris, Thomas Jackson, and Claiborne Carson there discussing the legacy of Dr. King with our own Brian Ballow. The segments you heard today and many more are in our archive at BackstoryRadio.org. Funding from the W.K. Kellogg Foundation is helping Virginia Humanities and Backstory change the narrative of race and representation. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Johns Hopkins University, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities. <laughs>